Chad Fowler was the CTO of Wonderlist prior to its acquisition by Microsoft. Since the acquisition of Wonderlist, Chad has become the general manager of developer advocacy at Microsoft. He also works as a venture capitalist at Blue Yard Capital, an early-stage investment firm. I had a lot of fun talking to Chad because he can move seamlessly between talking about disparate subjects like cloud computing, investing, cryptocurrencies, and music composition, and he has novel things to say about all of these. When Chad joined Wonderlist, he helped start a large refactoring of the software architecture, which makes for a great story, and then he helped the company navigate to a successful Microsoft acquisition. We started off the conversation with the story of that re-architecture of Wonderlist, and then we talked about the current opportunities that he sees in front of Microsoft. Chad gives his perspective on Kubernetes, functions as a service, and how developer tooling might evolve in the near future. After talking about the near term of developer tooling, we talked about the distant future. Bug bounty marketplaces on the blockchain, using GitHub repositories to train machine learning models about how to write code, the comparison between music collaboration and software collaboration. This was a wide array of topics, but Chad was equipped to discuss all of them and that's because he works at Microsoft and he makes large investments in the future through venture capital. And he studied music when he was in school. So it's really a lot of random stuff in this episode, but was really entertaining from my point of view. And I think you'll enjoy it as well. Before we get started, I want to mention that we are hiring a creative operations lead. If you are an excellent communicator, please check out our job posting for creative operations at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. This is a great job for someone who just graduated a coding boot camp or someone with a background in the arts who's making their way into technology. If you want to be creative and you want to learn more about engineering and you have great communication skills, check it out at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Thank you. Chad Fowler, you are General Manager of Developer Advocacy at Microsoft. You were the CTO at Wonderlist, and you do several other things. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. I'm excited. I'm a big fan of the show. Well, thanks for listening. And actually, you reached out a while ago, and we met up for coffee and had a really engaging conversation. And I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing it, because it was one of those conversations where you sit down and kind of the topics overflow the amount of time you've allocated for the conversation which is always a good sign. <laughs> Agreed, yeah. I, I felt like we probably could have gone the rest of the day and wouldn't have known what we talked about by the end. <laughs> right. So you were CTO of Wonderlist, and Wonderlist is a, a to-do app, a productivity app that ended up getting acquired by Microsoft. I was a user of Wonderlist for a pretty long time. I really enjoyed it. And so you, you joined Microsoft, and now you're working on the Azure side of things. You're also doing investing. You write some music. And I'm excited to touch on all these different areas. But let's start with Wonderlist, because I think there are some good architectural lessons from that experience that I've heard you discuss before. When you joined Wonderlist, what was the application architecture like? It was the, the usual two-box architecture where you have a client and one box and a server on the other. It was very monolithic. The clients had just been rewritten in native code, and they were just fabulous. But the back end was Rails sitting on top of Postgres, I think, at the time. Maybe MySQL, but sitting on top of a monolithic database. A bunch of pretty strange... Uh, design decisions in the Rails service itself. And it was just an API server. And there wasn't a, it wasn't like a web app, but some really, really interesting stuff with like in memory, what did they call it at the time? It, basically like Rails plugins, middlewares, that's what they're called. So that was the, the composition strategy, that and mix-ins all over the place. I think your experience uh, involved some re-architecting of that monolith, but from a prescriptive or proscriptive point of view, do you think there's anything inherently wrong with a monolith? Because some of the conversations I've had with people recently have kind of gone back and forth around that. You can over-index on microservices, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. You, you can... 
I mean, I think once once we had a name for microservices, thanks Frank, Fred George, that's when things started going wrong. And it's not his fault because you kind of need that to spread an idea. But as soon as you have a name, just like Agile, BDD, DevOps, you know, they all basically mean nothing at the end and and become an anchor for bad behavior. So microservices, you can over-index, you can do all kinds of stupid, crazy stuff just in the name of micro. I, is there anything inherently wrong with monoliths? I'm still going to say yes. Uh, I think there's probably something inherently wrong with pretty much any architecture, though. So, you know, maybe that's a, a non-answer. But there are some things that make monoliths hard to deal with, at least given modern technology. So, for example, being able to isolate performance of different pieces of a system and actually understand which thing is causing problems really hard in a monolith, no matter how well architected it is. Whereas in microservices, that part is easier. So I would say like the coupling aspect of, of monoliths is inherently negative. Maybe not inherently wrong, but inherently negative. Well, and that difficulty of finding out what's going on. So I saw a talk that you gave when you were talking about what the state of things was at Wonderless when you joined. It sounded like that you basically did chaos engineering to make things understandable. Like you joined the company and you just started making things fail and fall over in order to understand the code paths that that caused those those failures. Am I understanding correctly what happened? Sort of, yeah. Yeah. So I I took the job three months before I was actually able to move and I had to move to Germany to do it. So in the meantime between accepting the job and actually showing up, they had released a total rewrite of their, actually everything, but you know, including the back end. And by the time I got there, the team was just shell-shocked. It was you know like PTSD, everyone was afraid to touch the system because every time they deployed or did anything, it would crash, basically. They had had like, many successive days of downtime at certain points in, that, in, a, in a two-month period. And so, I got there, it was kind of a weird first day sort of experience where I, I was shown a room where I would sit and that was pretty much it. I guess it's like, hey, you're the grown up, you go figure it out. And so, you know, I had a computer maybe in a room. I went into the room and started talking to people and realized they were scared. So I got access to the AWS console. Um, we were using AWS at the time and, and started removing servers uh, from clusters until we hit the point where the system just started to explode. Didn't fully explode, but started to. And of course, everyone's kind of pissed because they're they're thinking, why have you just broken the system? Wonderful that we just hired you. Great. But what we did then is we brought it back up together. And it wasn't a disaster. It was just scary. And we started doing that often because what would happen is before I got there, I think they finally propped it up to the point of working and they were afraid to do anything. So they didn't really understand why it was working then or why it didn't work when it didn't work. They just, they got it working. They didn't want to touch it again. So I got us used to recovering. You know, it was as good for me, of course, uh, as it was for them in terms of learning my way around. But I think getting used to recovering and being comfortable in that space and being able to think clearly and develop the tool set for inspecting the system. And then, you know, uh, like I was talking about with monoliths, starting to develop an understanding of the failings of the architecture, because in some cases there are no tools that help you recover because you just can't figure out what's happening in this monolithic Rails app. That was all part of the process, and, and that's why I did what I did. And what were the responses that you made to that? So that you you learned some problems. What, what happened with rearchitecture? Did you just start breaking it out into services, or was there anything else you, you tried to bring into it? it? It was both an incremental and a radical approach. I decided pretty early on for a variety of reasons, some of which were about how the system was architected and how the public interfaces were defined, there actually wasn't a fully incremental way to fix the problem. And it would take way too long to explain. It would be boring probably to explain why that was, but we they had created a system that was not incrementally replaceable. So we started by doing some simple things like looking for hotspots in the code and the database and breaking the monolithic database into 
what did actually end up being the ultimate design, which was a stupid sharding where we just took all the tables of the whole system and put them in separate databases so they could at least have different IO constraints and we could scale them all separately. That sort of thing. And then in parallel, we started a complete re-architecture and rewrite, which we launched uh, about a year, a little more than a year later after the scene that I was just describing of bringing the system down over and over again. So the re-architecture and rewrite, would, did that consume the resources of the entire engineering team, or were you also releasing new features at the same time? For a while, we were releasing new features. Yeah. I guess you know, several months went by where we were taking what was a disastrously unhealthy system and making it passably healthy. And at the same time, especially mostly the client teams were working on new features, like we introduced Wonderlist Pro, which allowed us to do billing and you know have pro features. We introduced file attachments and comments, and it was the comments system that was our our first real step at creating a new service that looked like the full rewrite would eventually look. So we did we were able to do something incremental and we added a new service. And that's where we played around with and prototyped what would ultimately be our, our real-time sync protocol as well. But then at a certain point, we just had to go dark for a long time. Uh, and it was scary. I mean, I, uh, I wrote a, a blog series that got linked all over the place in 2006, basically declaring I was done with rewrites and I'd done too many of them in my career. And here's all the reasons you shouldn't do it. <laughs> And of course, I spent the next uh, you know, 10 or so years continuing to do them. And this was a huge one. But yeah, when we finally released it, it was a big rewrite. But we had figured out a way to piecemeal at least API calls. So we created a whole new architecture for APIs. And then in the old monolith, we replaced some of our Rails models, which are just dumb Ruby classes that are usually like ORM classes sitting on tables. We replaced those with classes that in Ruby were doing REST calls to our new APIs so that we were at least in production exercising the new architecture in some way before the full launch. So it ended up being this weird piecemeal of full rewrite and, and incremental over the course of a year. So people people loved Wonderlist. Wonderlist is like one of those things that's like Trello or Dropbox or Slack, kind of one of these things that sits somewhere between the consumer and the enterprise and plays a little bit in both of those environments. And so it eventually got acquired by Microsoft. That was in June 2015. What was the process leading up to that acquisition? Mm, It was, I I think it took six months total. And it starts... The whole conversation and everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Usually what happens is... uh, when a big company like Microsoft, and this is true for most big companies, I think, is interested in talking about acquisition with a startup, they will first reach out and say something like, we want to have conversations about partnership. And you know, it will feel kind of vague. And it's usually someone who has a title that looks like biz dev or corp dev. And usually the biz versus corp thing is the, is the uh, telling factor. Corp dev typically means acquiring companies. So we got contacted like that. We were also in a mode at the time where, as a management team, we had decided we needed to think about the future. We had raised a a Series B from Sequoia in 2014, I think, uh, 2013. And it was about time to figure out whether we try to buckle down and get profitable or we raise another round or we sell the company. So some of us on the on the management team had decided selling the company was probably the best choice and we're pretty much already there and i was one of those people so we were already excited to talk to microsoft because we've been walk- watching the acquisitions they'd done like accompli and sunrise and just the change in culture the change in design aesthetic user friendliness all the sorts of things that everyone talks about in the uh, satya nadella microsoft world So we were really excited to talk to them when they came along. And the way the process works is you, you know, you have a few conversations that are really vague. Eventually they say, yeah, we're actually talking about acquisition here. There's a deal sponsor in the company, which is, you know, the person in a business unit that really brought this up and said, I want to acquire this company or I want to acquire a company like this. And then you go through this intense dating experience, basically. 
And it really is, is like that because no one is really allowed to say, I like you, let's do this, you know, in the same way that when you maybe uh, are shy and are first getting to know someone, you're not really direct and blunt, like, okay, I think we should be together. But, you know, so we, we went through several weeks there um, or maybe even a couple of months of sort of going back and forth. We made some visits back and forth. And then you declare your actual intent that Microsoft did in that case. You sign a contract uh, with a letter, letter of intent, and then you can start going through the process intensely of due diligence where you've already agreed on a purchase price. And it's really just making sure that the company is getting what they expect. And there aren't any problems under the covers that they haven't seen. Is it, is it hard? Is a negotiation or, or is it pretty, can you sort of do the evaluation and people come to a, come to an agreement or uh, like how, you know, how, how difficult is that process or is it, does it feel like it's, you know, just kind of a back and forth and asymptoting towards something that's sort of win-win or does it feel like somebody's trying to get the better of somebody? Because it feels, to me, it seems like the successful acquisitions are going to be the ones where it, the transaction happens and nobody has remorse. I don't know. It depends on... The acquisition, you know, it depends on the acquirer and the company they're buying. I would doubt there's ever been, or, or there has, I would say there has rarely been a really easy one where you just say, hey, we want to buy you for this much. And the acquired company says, that sounds good. And you go, with it. <laughs> you know, there, there's always some back and forth. Most likely what I know from, you know, our experience, and I, I've been involved in companies that have been acquired twice in the management teams. And Usually there is a, a range that everyone expects on both sides. And if you're anywhere inside that range, then it's probably something like buying a house. You're going you're gonna to triangulate on a number and everyone can kind of guess what it is. If, if expectations are fully off, that's probably not going to be the case that the transaction goes through, honestly. Uh, so what was the, uh, the uh, integration you know, after the acquisition happens, you know, you, you figure out, okay, here's our synergies, here we're, here's where we're going to integrate, here's where we're going to kind of stay a separate product, what kinds of refactoring had to be done? What was what was life like during that integration period? You might even say it's still going. I don't know. Uh, you know, in the beginning, the guy who led the deal and who became my boss, his name was Iran Megiddo. Um, I guess it still is Iran Megiddo, but uh, he, he is a vice president that has the the to-do app now is what it's called OneNote education and the whiteboard software that Microsoft has just released. He kept saying, as we were leading up to the acquisition, I don't want to get in your way. I wanted you to just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job. Don't let us slow you down. And that sounded great. Obviously, you know, when you're being acquired as a separate company, you think, ah, yeah, I want some freedom. When we got in, it turned out that he was being absolutely honest even to a point where I almost wished that that he he wasn't like that, you know. So we had to sort of find our way around the company. He helped, of course, but he really wasn't dogmatic at all or draconian about what we needed to be doing. It became really like a business development exercise. And I mean that very literally. Like there was a guy on the team that ended up playing the role of business development inside the company. I took over as general manager of the team instead of being CTO anymore, pretty much right when the acquisition started. So I led the whole thing and he reported to me and it was really like we were just going around to different teams in Microsoft talking about the things that we wished we were able to do when we were separate and small and we thought maybe now we can do. And as we talked, we built a story and it became cohesive and literally created a pitch deck that we went around with and started showing to everyone and got people excited. So our vision ended up being that, and I don't know if it really surfaces in exactly this way, but our vision early on was that tasks become the connective fabric between productivity applications. So they connect a suite of productivity applications together because they're the things you need to do. And you know that was a pretty easy thing to sell um, Microsoft has the Microsoft Graph API. You know, it really is like you have this graph of work objects already if you're using Office 365. No one told us, okay, now switch your, uh, and I didn't talk about the architecture that we landed on, but it, we had a crazily heterogeneous microservice architecture 
with servers dying and, and being brought back to life constantly, this sort of cellular regeneration metaphor. And we were running on Linux. Uh, everything was Linux, Haskell, Elixir, Ruby, all sorts of languages behind it. No one said, all right, now consolidate this and run it on .NET on ASP or something. You know, there was nothing like that. It was, it was more the company trying to figure out how best to serve the architecture that we had built and then to contribute Microsoft's strengths to it, which would be things like deep privacy and compliance and trust, you know, the things that are really hard to build as a small startup, but Microsoft, you know, has made uh, an art of. So ultimately what we decided, and, and it literally was like me and my team that decided it, and this sounded crazy at the time, we decided to re-platform the back end, all the best stuff that we had ever built, you know, the best part of my career, the best thing I'd ever done, throw it away and sit Wonderlist on top of Microsoft Exchange as a back end. And, you know, if you're like me, you think Microsoft Exchange is the old email service that people were using in, <laughs> you know, year 2000. And it was, but it's also a pretty amazing globally distributed key document store. It's it's an amazing architecture. You can find stuff on on it online. Probably be a good good uh, podcast subject at some point. I should do that. That sounds good. Yeah, I'm going to write that down. Yeah. So, you know, we decided we were going to use that. We were going to throw away the Wonderlist architecture, uh, and at the same time we said we don't want to just we don't want to just rebrand. Wonderlist is not a great name for a global brand. You know, it's it's kind of uh kitschy and startup-y and, and maybe German doesn't work well across all markets. So we knew we were going to have to change the name, but we decided we were going to try and build the next version. So like our big launch when I was there was Wonderlist 3. So we're basically doing Wonderlist 4 and we're going to call it something else and we're going to try and create the Wonderlist killer. We're going to take out all the stuff in Wonderlist that even though it's simple and beautiful, beautiful and people love it, we think it's still in the way. It's like not the fully realized vision. So how do we make it simpler? So we undertook a massive project to do all that. And and the output of that is Microsoft To Do, which is in preview right now, uh, running and sitting on Exchange, this compliant data store, and I think has a, a beautiful, simple API, great real-time sync, and we're just catching up on a few features that are left. And when I say we, I mean the Wonderlist team. And that's where we went. To-do lists are this thing that has become fundamental to my life. Sometime after college, to-do lists became really the backbone of how I structure my day and structure some, I mean, some bigger things in my life. You know, when I want to get something done, it's on a to-do list somewhere or maybe on multiple to-do lists. It may be, you know, not only replicated across, you know, three different apps, but it's also on paper and it's on a whiteboard somewhere. And it's like to-do lists, it feels like something that's very fundamental to productive people. But at the same time, the medium by which we maintain our to-do lists seems to constantly change. Like, oh, maybe we should be doing Kanban boards. Actually, no, let's not do Kanban boards. Let's not all have our personal Trellos. But, you know, maybe we keep it in Slack. Or, you know, What are your thoughts on this? Like, it's been constantly been changing. And how do you use to-do lists in your life? Well, this is what you've just described articulates the opportunity and kind of problem that we were trying to solve toward the end of Wonderlist and the beginnings of our, our time at Microsoft, that I agree, to-do lists are fundamental. Tasks themselves are fundamental. Uh, everyone has things to do, you know, and we all understand it. We like to interface with them in different ways. We need to be able to get to our task list everywhere, and it is a problem if you have them spread all over the place. You lose things unless you have a really, you know, great system for finding the list first and then finding the tasks. So our our goal is to try and figure out how, no matter where you are, you can capture things immediately. And I think we did a good job of that with Wonderlist, at least as a startup, that it was trivial to put something in Wonderlist. And, you know, we had Chrome plugins and all sorts of things so that wherever you were with a nice API, that wherever you were, you could very easily put things in. And then to be able to recall things in a, in a clean way and actually keep track of what you need to do. So like, I think, I think the way that you project a to-do list 
can be very flexible because you know you can almost model anything as a list you know a list of lists with items in it anything can be modeled that way which means that it is therefore possible if anything can be modeled as a list is therefore possible to project those lists in any notion of ui that is possible so for example one of the early experiments that we had that we just used internally with wonderlist but i always wanted to build before we were acquired and had a competing product was you could think of a to-do list as a board in a trello type scenario and then you could move things in the board and just have that be a different visual representation. Maybe you could use statuses or tags in the to-dos to keep track of them. I think we used tags in kind of a hacky, convention-driven way. But it's still just a list. The data structure is the same. And the fact that you have the thing there and you want to remember it is the same. And the fundamental stuff inside, like due dates and reminders associated, and maybe assignees, it's all the same. It's just a way of projecting. So I think that, you know... When I went to work at Wonderlist, I was leaving a job where I was dealing with massive scale and it was a multi-billion dollar valued business. And people said, oh, you're going to go work on a to-do list? Really? You know, if you search for to-do list on Google, you've got like hundreds of thousands of results for even code implementing to-do lists. It's like the hello world now for programming. But my ambition with them was to try to create the last necessary to-do list app. So, you know, create a great integrated experience everywhere with an open API and, you know, intelligence behind the scenes. And that's one reason we were excited about getting acquired is we thought, well, even if we can't hit the entire internet, at least the the canvas that we have available and the number of users that we can help at Microsoft is massive. So we can actually, actually achieve this vision inside Microsoft with integrating the Microsoft products and then still be open to the outside world because Microsoft is is like that these days. We have open APIs that you can connect to. Mm. So eventually you shifted over to developer advocacy or other kinds of work within the cloud. You know, as Microsoft is going through this big transition towards building more cloud products. I've done a lot of coverage of some of the the new Azure products and stuff related to Kubernetes and containers and and Cosmos DB and there's a lot of exciting products that are being built. So what does your role look like today? So it's just just changed uh, a few weeks ago. I I actually moved initially into the Azure organization to lead something called Startup Advocacy, which is a new team that I created. And the purpose is to help the startup world and, and VC world by association and to connect better and, and provide more value uh, to that, that audience um, as a company. Uh, I did that because... You know, being a startup guy myself, I was kind of ready to get back into the startup life. Turned out I could find a job at this new big company that I still love talking to the audience and the people that I love all the time. So what that looked like was uh, CTOs and residents from all of the worldwide accelerators reporting to me and thinking about how we can help the CTO community, the startup CTO community, both in the ones that are going through our accelerators and in our local ecosystems. So, you know, London, Berlin, Sydney, et cetera. We have accelerators called scale-ups all around the world. I have recently brought that team with me into the larger group called Cloud Developer Advocacy, which which probably uh, many listeners will be uh, familiar with various members of that team. The team was formed a little over a year ago, and it, you can think of it as the the rethinking of developer evangelism at Microsoft. Uh, so we have we hire people that are part of technical communities uh, and already leaders in those technical communities, rather than hiring people that are aligned to our products and then having them try to go out to tech communities. So for example, we have people in the Node community. They're already deep in the Node community. We tell them, keep doing what you're doing with the Node community. That's why we want you. We want people that are really connected to developers and their needs in modern and heterogeneous environments. But as you do that stuff, help us make Azure a better place for those developers and help us tell those other developers that Azure is indeed a better place when it is. And you know, we try to do that rather than going out and selling specific Azure services on stage 
we just work it in as the way we naturally do stuff. So if you're, you know, doing a tutorial on, I don't know, an Express.js app or something, you're deploying it into an Azure app service or you're deploying into Azure functions, but you're not getting up and giving a product pitch for Azure. I lead that overall team. Uh, I'm, I'm still learning my way around, but the combination for me of developer community with my background in open source and the Ruby world and all the other stuff I've done with developers in the past, startups, and then cloud computing is kind of the perfect thing for my interests. Well, you know, if you look at, so one way to, to I think to, that we could frame this of how much is changing right now is if you look at what you were building with Wonderlist back in 2015, some of the problems that you had to solve relative to the technologies that you have available today and how you would solve them today, the the products that you would choose, the the open source technologies that you would choose, would be so different today. And it's just been three years. I mean, the the idea of you know having access to serverless or some managed Kubernetes solution. It's, it's, it's so different, and and also just you know the kind of the interoperability between your your kind of like open source. I'm writing this code compute layer, and the managed services layer, uh, or the you know the the whatever your, your you know MongoDB or, or uh, DynamoDB or or Cosmos, Cosmos DB yeah. or you know name your API name your name your machine learning API or your machine learning framework or your mach- or your hosted machine learning framework all of this tooling has changed so much in just three years so what when you look at that pace of change how does that inform like how you're spending your day to day. I will say I'm very excited about the the changes that have happened, especially in um, you know containers, Kubernetes, that sort of area. I have had a almost career long obsession with trying to figure out how to build software systems that can live a long life. And I didn't really say it, but when we went through the rearchitecture of Wonderlist, I, I did the entire thing through that lens. You know, I, it started with a talk I gave many years ago that I've done replicas of over, the, over time called Legacy, where we try to recast the word legacy and software as a positive thing, like it is almost everywhere else, leaving a legacy. And through that, I developed my own set of biological metaphors for, for software. And I know this sounds like I'm not answering your question, but I'm almost there. The most important one is the concept of cellular regeneration. So, you know, you can look at a a human body and just to to totally oversimplify it, I am not mostly the same cells that I was when I was born. Somehow I'm still Chad and, you know, I'm, I'm still me and the system of me still survives and compared to most software systems is pretty healthy, even though I don't take great uh, care of myself all the time. So that was one thing that I, I took as a central concept in building what I ended up calling immutable infrastructure at Wonderlist, which is tiny pieces that are disposable. Servers are disposable, you know, runtimes are disposable, code should be disposable. You should be able to throw it away and rewrite it because it's so small and so well decoupled. And we ended up at that time building a, a crazy amount of infrastructure around these concepts. And I, I say crazy, like when Microsoft did due diligence, the team that they contracted with to do the, the really deep stuff came back and literally wrote over-engineered as like a headline, but in a celebratory way. They liked it. <laughs> I, I was very proud of that because it was, if you think, if you back up and say, wait a second, this is a to-do list. Whoa. Why do you have all this crazy stuff? You know, I, I can see how it feels over-engineered, but what we were building was a way of working with systems where we would never have to rewrite the thing again. We would rewrite all the pieces of it. And we did ultimately rewrite at least 80% of it, but we never had to, after that, do any kind of massive overhaul to the system. So getting to today, we built a bunch of stuff that with the advent of Docker and orchestration layers and all this stuff becomes much, much easier to achieve. You know, the idea that runtimes should be temporary is kind of obvious now. But, you know, back then we were literally killing and and recreating VMs just to ensure that we had cycling and regeneration in the system for its health. 
And it was really heavy because it was virtual machines and not containers. So I'm excited about what all this stuff enables. I think we still have a long way. I, I call this an incremental step, all this this change that you're talking about. It's still noisy. I th- and I think we have a long way industry-wide to figure out how to adopt this stuff to to great effect in the same way that we, we don't really understand why we're doing microservices across the industry. We're just making little services, but they're still tightly coupled and you know they have all the problems of the monolith, but more problems on top in most cases. So what about the serverless stuff? So this is a conversation I have with a lot of people in the Kubernetes community. And by the way, nobody knows what you know is going to happen with serverless versus Kubernetes. There is no like tech oracle that you can go to and 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 ask what's the future of serverless versus kubernetes nobody knows there's all these serverless frameworks being written uh, on top of kubernetes and there's obviously these serverless just serverless deployment functions on on microsoft and google and amazon and and they're event driven and so on and but what, what's your take on that like wh- where does this go and and what does our state-of-the-art compute layer look like in, I don't know, three years? If we can avoid the human temptation to invent things ourselves, the right way to go is to let go of building stuff that isn't the core of our business, whatever that is. Yeah, I agree with that. that. That's surprisingly controversial. It shouldn't be, yeah. But uh, so like at Wonderlist, even back then, my rule was everything should be disposable. You can't actually change the configuration of a server and everything needs to be stateless so you can throw it away. And the exception, of course, is stuff that stores data. So we started moving to store all data in some sort of managed service so we didn't have a server to manage it. So you know whether it be you know, even RabbitMQ, Redis, all the databases, those were all just managed hosted things like RDS and Amazon. And I think that's the way to go. You know, you you need to get out of that business uh, in the same way that decades ago people needed to trust Assembler to be to generate good machine code, and eventually trust C to generate good Assembler. You know, the levels of abstraction raise, and if you really care about getting things done, you go up as high as you can. Uh, and you know, I think for me right now, that would be how I test the limits in the way that I was testing the limits with the Wonderlist architecture when I started. I would be testing how little can I actually write and how few services can I actually manage. So my opinion is that Kubernetes and all these things are going to be pieces of infrastructure that few people have to deal with. And they enable quote unquote serverless, you know, nothing is actually serverless, but they enable this abstraction where you just deploy code that elastically scales. And I hope that people use functions, Lambda, et cetera, in ways that map to their names, meaning don't deploy a whole MVC type app into it and have that be something that gets managed, but try to constrain yourself to deploying small functions into it that are, you know, decoupled and ideally even stateless where possible. I think that would be better for the industry. I completely agree with that. And unfortunately, look, I'm not writing software today, so I'm not really in a position to say this authoritatively, but I'm not sure I envy the people who are doing the Kubernetes migrations today because I think, you know, okay, they're migrating to a hybrid cloud scenario where they're on a managed Kubernetes provider together with their on-prem infrastructure. And yeah, that's that's great. Uh, it's, it's certainly an improvement, but I think in a couple of years, the serverless conversation is going to be more at the fore and I think going to be more accepted and less edgy and people are going to be like, why did we invest in this infrastructure management layer? Like, why did we do that? Yeah, although if you do it right, you set yourself up for the future. You know, if you, if you do... Uh, containers and Kubernetes and all this stuff in the philosophically true way, you have a configuration that's really easy to port, even if it's by writing scripts to generate something else out of it. And you hopefully have code that is in small decoupled components that make it easy to port as well. So that's the way I would be thinking if I were doing a migration like that right now is, okay, this is my meta layer that enables me to very easily evolve to the next step. And then from here on out, it's all just declarative. 
Yeah. Um, so anyway, since I'm already speculating about the future and subjects I have no business speculating about, the last time we spoke, we talked about some different investing areas. So we were talking about cryptocurrency infrastructure, uh, other things around Kubernetes, developer productivity, machine learning, and then the intersection or the power set of intersections of all <laughs> those subjects. Give me the Chad Fowler... The Chad Fowler investment thesis, the venture venture investment thesis. The give me the five minute Chad Fowler investment thesis. Oh, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if I can construct that, but I can take all those words that you just said and tell you something about how I think about it. It may not be an investment thesis. So I I am an investor. I'm a venture partner with Blue Yard out of Berlin. And when we were talking, it was because when you and I were talking about this, it was because I was about to run a small conference in Iceland, which we did, called Future of Software Development, where we got all these forward-thinking practitioners, researchers, and entrepreneurs that are doing stuff to, to bring forward how we do software development in the future in a hopefully non-linear way, as well as people who have made historic contributions to the field previously. I don't know if I can call it an investment thesis, but if you take the combination of those things you just talked about. So machine learning, big code, as some of the machine learning uh, for program synthesis people talk about it. So the existence of, for example, GitHub as a public repository of repositories. This is historically something that has not existed, and now it does. The advances in machine learning itself and the performance of machines that you know make stuff like uh, deep neural nets possible. And then cryptocurrency economies. And I, I say that because it's not just about making a coin, but you know, when I think when you do cryptocurrency right, it's because you're enabling a new protocol to be developed on top of an incentive economy. Munge these things together. And I imagine a world where, for example, open source development is re-implemented on top of protocols that are driven by economic incentive. So you could, for example, buy shares in an open source project and have that be part of how governance works, but also gain shares by contributing. And contributions could be baked into the protocol so that the the protocol of how humans interact in, in open source projects incentivizes stuff like helping people on forums and contributing documentation, not just contributing code. So if you have that, then uh, I believe we're getting to a place where software, the actual code is not not the value anymore. we're, We're pretty much already there, but most people haven't admitted it yet. So therefore all software can be open source. Um, and then you just, you know, you charge by, or you make money off of software by running it for people and providing safe environments for it to execute. So all software is open source. Open source development is done on this token economy and, and you can make money off the token economy. It's possible that software developers don't actually work at companies anymore, or at least there's a huge migration away from that. And instead, they're just working on open source projects and they're they're getting paid for the work they do. Now add program synthesis and various other techniques that are machine learning driven approaches to learning, you know, computers learning to, to program computers. I could imagine things like, let's say Heartbleed comes out, for example. There's a race early morning for someone to be the first to release the the bot that goes and plugs every open source project in the world. Uh, And suddenly they're rich in a day because they have solved a big problem. Or, you know, you find a class of security problem or a class of even uh, software quality improvement and you can unleash your code, you know, your, your bot. So I can imagine bot nets that are created that live on top of this token economy that are really driving uh, improvements and eventually even creation you know if you really want to get futuristic of of new features by reading descriptions of feature requests yeah all all very futuristic and hand wavy and unlikely to actually happen but uh, i think some versions of this will will certainly take place and some components of this will get built I mean, you know, I I agree with 
pretty much all of that at the i mean the only thing you know you and i i think would maybe maybe disagree on is is time horizon or i you I mean, we probably are both on the same page that we don't know what the time horizon is but this we can look at the foundations and say this stuff is possible all of that stuff is possible you and i could 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 spend days mapping out on a whiteboard how it's going to take place and the different market pressures that are going to lead us in that direction. For example, it's all going to be open source and it's going to be developers hacking on the same thing because look at what happened with Linux. Look at what happened with Kubernetes. Look at what happened with, you know, name your open source technology that people centralized around. And obviously other people came up, you know, it wasn't just React.js. There was Vue.js sort of on the side, but, you know, Vue.js makes some very conscious, consciously different design decisions that give it its own community. But by and large... Developers do not like the idea that stuff gets written exactly the same for one company and, and and another company. It's like, as engineers, it irks us because it's just like this, if only all the developers were working on Android or all the developers working on iOS, just pick one. Like, we don't need this duality. We don't need people rewriting everything in two places at once. Although that is part of the the way that open source works, of course, you know the the old cathedral and bazaar thing. It's the bazaar model, and and competition in open source communities creates better better software. But you're right that I think that that same mentality of don't write this over and over again that software developers have usually to a fault. It will play a part in this, and it has already. I mean, I remember. I was working actively when Netscape was open sourced and when Eric Raymond released that Cathedral in the Bazaar uh, essay. And I was part of a team uh, at GE that introduced open source software for the first time and really had to like fight for it to be okay. And now, I mean, I even tell people at Microsoft, stop saying open source so much because everyone just assumes things are open source now. You don't need to say that anymore. You know, it's become just how we do things. But you're right. All these components of this this semi-vision thing that I laid out exist. I can even tell you not just how they would happen, but uh, you know, I have the email addresses of the people working on all of them too. Uh, in some cases, multiple different teams working on solutions in each of these areas. But how do you know which ones are working on Webvan and which ones are working on Instacart? <laughs> that I don't know. Uh, you know, <laughs> as an investor, I can tell you. It's all about the people. You talk to the people and you're you're blown away by people and you just follow them and you can't help but but invest. The first example, I think it was the first investment Blue Yard made was in Protocol Labs, which uh, is the team behind IPFS, the open source um, file sharing protocol, peer-to-peer. And then, you know, the upcoming Filecoin, a bunch of other interesting software. But when you talk to Juan, who is the founder of Protocol Labs, you will be convinced by the end. You, he will he will move you from skeptic to believer. <laughs> that's right. That's that's why you invest because even if he's wrong, he's going to do something. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the other thing is like this money doesn't get wasted. It's like even if you even if you put money into both Instacart and Webvan, you would be a winner. <laughs> you know, you 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 lose two x your money and you gain a hundred x. So it's just it's just funny. Like people will ask, like, are we in? Are we in? Is it too early to invest? Are we in the web van days or are we in the Instacart days? It actually doesn't matter. You should put money in either way. <laughs> yeah, or not, just depending on your your profile and, right. and ad- appetite for risk, of course. But yeah, right. I'm with you on that. Of course, and also we don't know the time horizon could be compressed. Maybe there's a thousand web vans before the Instacart. Yeah, completely. Although you know, it, it feels like it's more these days that things are speeding up. So there are probably far fewer web vans or maybe maybe there's a thousand in a very short period. I don't exactly. Know. <laughs> but, it, you know, part of the conversation about time horizon for things changing in these radical ways in, in terms of how we develop software that influences me. I remember going to YC Demo Day a couple of years ago and I, I'm going to get it wrong, but I'll just say the wrong thing. It, it's right in principle. There was one team that was like 3D printing rocket engines and another one that had cheap satellites that you could put in space. And then I talked to another company right around then that was building basically like Android for satellites. 
And suddenly I had not heard about any of this kind of stuff. And then suddenly I realized, oh, wow, I can afford to put a satellite in space with my own custom software that I can hack on. That just came out of nowhere. You know, at the same time, we have autonomous cars and all this stuff that felt like it was, quote, unquote, the future or all caps, the future. <laughs> the future just showed up all at once. And so I'm... I don't know. I might just be naive, but I feel like we can't predict at all. And all I know is it's going to come faster than I expect. Do you think uh, this might be this? I okay. Last super speculative question. Uh, then we'll talk about music. So I was when I was at KubeCon in uh, in Copenhagen. I I talked to a few people asked, and I sort of made sure I picked the right people to talk to because talking to it's funny, like talking about cryptocurrencies or blockchains at a Kubernetes conference is a very easy way to end up a wallflower and be like, oh, that's the guy that's talking about blockchains. We, we already decided that that stuff is not happening. It's funny, like it's crazy, this, this, this distributed systems conference where nobody's talking about cryptocurrencies. It's just very strange. But do you think there will be some kind of overlap between the Kubernetes distributed systems, like centralized infrastructure community and the blockchain crypto community or is this like is this like saying that yeah i mean there's a diff- there's a overlap between linux and kubernetes in the sense that you know like kubernetes is used to manage linux nodes or do you see an overlap there or do you think it's like not even worth kind of going in that direction i think if you start talking about product names like kubernetes then maybe not but if 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 the question is do traditional quote unquote traditional distributed systems people end up overlapping with the blockchain people and and, their interests overlap. Absolutely. It's just a matter of how long, you know, I I remember trying to figure out what the hell Ethereum was when I first heard about it. And I actually heard a great podcast that you did where you explained it quite well in the podcast. But, you know, you hear people talk about Ethereum. The layman usually thinks Ethereum is just another cryptocurrency thingy. You know, it's, it's for money. But when you talk to Ethereum people, they say this is a distributed virtual machine and you run programs. They call them contracts, but they're programs and they're programs that are immutable and, you know, theoretically cannot be turned off by anyone, too, because they're decentralized the way they're run. There are teams that are taking that topic and that metaphor very literally and building layers on top of it. So there's like Zeppelin OS, which is if you think of Ethereum as a virtual machine, then Zeppelin OS is an operating system that provides services above the hardware layer. Right now, as I mean, we had a, a panel actually with, with Zeppelin and uh, Parity and uh, some others at this Future of Software thing. And I said, I asked the question to the panel, if this is a distributed virtual machine, it's the slowest, crappiest virtual machine ever. You know, it has some nice characteristics in terms of all the immutability and guarantees and cryptography, but it just doesn't, can't run anything real. So is there going to be a time that you can really run apps on this thing? And of course, I don't remember the exact answers, but the answer was something like, yes, sort of. But I I think that day is coming where something happens that makes it possible to run things at scale and with decent speed across this distributed, say, you know, cryptographically secured virtual machine. And you get all the benefits that you know about now from it, if you know those benefits, uh, if you care enough, you know, but it actually also runs in a decent way. When that happens, then the the traditional systems people are going to have to take notice. So when the economy becomes entirely open source and it's flowing, the, the economic value is flowing in a distributed fashion and we end up with uh, basic income where everybody can now just be creative, robots are doing everything, perhaps music will become an important thing for people to think about on a serious level as opposed to just entertainment value because maybe we'll have more artists in the world any really really a messy segue there but <laughs> so, so it was great Very so, Thank you. so 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 uh, the last conversation we had we talked a, a little bit about splice and since then i actually did a, a show about splice which was really fun i mean i i i know you're a fan of the splice people basically they are trying to solve music collaboration from all the different dimensions. Like you see 
all the things that you can do on GitHub, you know, say what you will, uh, critical of GitHub, a lot goes on on GitHub and there's a lot of different things. It's a really vibrant ecosystem. And it seems like Splice is going to be the same thing for music or already is. What do you think is the future of music? And, and I, you're, you're, by the way, you went to school as a, you, you studied music in school, so you and you you know you've thought a lot about this this intersection between music and computer science, and I think you know Splice is going to change things. It's going to make collaboration at scale possible on music. I think machine learning is going to change the life of a musician. You know, you think about all the things that we have to do as a musician. If you're a multi talented musician, you know you've got to think of a chord progression, and you've got to do mixing and mastering, and, and all of these things. We could very well define like, yeah, well, this is what a good mix sounds like. Um, machine learn to recognize that and give it to me don't make me like insert an eq like that's just unnecessary uh and yet we're still doing it today so how do you think the life of a musician changes in five or ten years i think it actually degrades in five to ten years uh in certain ways and that is because of the democratization of music you know the things that you were talking about make it possible for people who didn't spend hours and years of their life deeply studying and practicing like I did to create things that sound as good or better. Even today's technology allows that. You know, you can be a hobbyist and create something that ends up being a hit. There's no reason you can't. And not just something that's a hit in terms of like writing a song, but fully producing it. It's amazing. You know, I'm, I'm on a computer here with Ableton Live on it and the stuff that you can do barely even knowing Ableton is just blows my mind. So I think the ability to live as a musician is a little harder. It already, you know, it's already getting worse and worse. It has been for years. I think that continues, and and maybe basic income is is the answer to not completely lose the arts. the The only saving grace there, though, I would say, is that a lot of the work that musicians do is not art anyway, and they don't think of it as art. And I say that as someone who has been a professional musician, and I have a lot of friends who are. I think machines can eventually do commercial music better than we can. There's no reason they couldn't. It's not art. It's programmatic. You know, I, and I say that as someone who, like, uh, a couple of years ago, I moved back to the U.S. after living in Germany and working on Wonderlist and moved back to Memphis, where I had been a professional musician. I pulled the saxophones back out and started practicing and, and played a few gigs around town. You know, very friendly reception from my old musicians buddies who used to be the up and comers in Memphis and are now suddenly 20 years later the, the first called people. But what I found is it's sort of a bummer. It's not really fun. It's a job for them. For me, you know, I was I was excited to go play a blues gig, but ultimately I want to do something that is completely creative. So it doesn't hurt my feelings that much that maybe kids won't grow up and play Mustang Sally 14 times a week on Beale Street in the future because that really isn't art anyway. I've talked to a couple of startups in, in the space of music synthesis through machine learning and I'm excited about the future there, weirdly enough. You know, I think not only can machines more efficiently generate music than people when there are strict parameters, but they can do things that we couldn't. So, for example, if you were generating music on the fly inside a game, the engine could react to what's happening in the game. Um, you know, imagine your character in a game has a theme song that always is identified with you as the character. And as you traverse the game and do different things, you have different variations on your theme that, uh, that convey the right emotion at the time. You can't compose something like that. It's not actually possible. So, you know, I think a lot of interesting stuff will happen there. And I do think that ultimately music can get better, or at least the, the ability to express oneself artistically can improve through all this automation in the same way we were talking about software developers. Build, your, build the core as a software developer, not all the infrastructure that doesn't really matter. Same thing is true as you were saying in music, that you spend so much time as a musician, even when you're trying to artistically express yourself doing things that are not the core of what it is you're trying to create. So I hope that technology, and I believe that technology will rapidly fill gaps there and improve that experience. 
Yeah, I bet. So the life of a musician in 15 years is like you sit down in front of your digital assistant and you're like, ah, so I, ah, today I've really been, you know, thinking about the relationship I had in elementary school. And, uh, and I've also been listening to a lot of Nine Inch Nails and I'm some Frank Ocean and a little bit of Skrillex. And, you know, I really like B flat today. And then you just swipe through different configurations of that, <laughs> of that uh, set of influences. Yeah. I mean, it might even even know already that you're you've been doing all those things because the computer, right. yeah, computer exactly. is watching you. <laughs> I've generated but, some songs for you. I I do that anyway. And in fact, some of the best work that I've done as a musician has been because of constraints that were that were imposed. Like uh, there's a so site called Songfight where they just give you a title, and it used to be once a week, and you have to write and record and publish a song of that title. Oh. But, and in a sense, it's generating something for you there, you know? I mean, it's mm. at a very crude level, but I've even done stuff like auto-generated lyrics with Ruby scripts 15 <laughs> years ago and then tried to write songs for those. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, auto-generated song titles using uh, character-based CNN by feeding in all the jazz song titles in the world and then, you know, see what that inspires. So I don't think all these sorts of ideas are very different from, well, let's just hear some random notes that might sound good too and see if that spawns an idea. I think these are tools that we'll use as creative people. Chad Fowler, I think that's a good place to stop very abruptly, but uh, I'm sure we'll we'll do something else in the future. There's a, there's a lot here and um, we could have explored more. So So thanks for coming on the show. You know, it's it's been great getting to know you, and I, I enjoy our conversations a lot. I like the free-flowing nature of them. Yes, if we tried to do anything else, it would absolutely fail, so I'm glad this is what we did. <laughs> cool. Okay, awesome. I, I, I really enjoyed this episode. This is great. Great. Me too. Thanks. Wow. Wow.